Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast, I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the upcoming Western Australian state election. I'm joined by two guests today. My first guest is Martin Drum. Martin is an Associate Professor in Politics and International Relations at the University of Notre Dame in Western Australia. Hello, Martin. Oh, hi, Ben. Good to be here. And my second guest is Christine Cunningham. Christine is a Senior Lecturer in the School of Education at Edith Cowan University and is a former Deputy Mayor of the City of Canning in Perth. Hello, Christine. Hi, Ben. Hi, Martin. Great to be here too. This is the first episode of 2021 and our first one discussing Western Australian state politics. So I thought we should start by getting up to speed about what has been happening in Western Australia in recent years. Martin, can you start us off with what happened at the 2017 state election? Well, a lot of people are talking about the 2021 state election as being one-sided, but they may not realise that the 2017 election was very one-sided. It was a massive victory for Labor, so they already hold a heck of a lot of seats. They won 41 seats. They've lost one since at a by-election. So they've already got 40 seats out of 59. And they still didn't win the upper house, though. They only won 14 of the 36 seats. That's probably a story for later on. But upper house is very heavily weighted towards the regions and the metropolitan area where Labor does very well. Um, doesn't have as many seats per head of population. Christine, so before we get to COVID-19, which is going to be a big part of the story, how do you think the Labor government was performing like this time last year? Pretty well. They certainly have done exceptionally well in the last 12 months, but um, people had been ready for a change in 2017. Um, the landslide victory meant that they have had a lot of coverage in the news um, without a lot of opposition. The opposition is exceptionally weak. Uh, Lisa Harvey who will and, and the changeover to um, Zach Kirkup meant that they just weren't in the news a lot. Um, so they were still tracking quite well, but there's no question that COVID has changed everything. What has been the life experience of COVID-19 if, for someone in, in, say, Perth over the last year, particularly once the first wave had kind of ended? Has, has life largely just gone back to normal? It's been very much like normal. We've got a few restrictions on large events and some of our largest events have been cancelled. But for the most part, once you're here, it's hard enough getting here, but when you're here, you're living life virtually as normal. We had that one week of lockdown and the second week of wearing masks, and that's the exception. The rest of the time, it's almost like the, the pandemic doesn't exist outside of it's It's somewhere else, but not here. Yeah, it certainly exists somewhere else for a lot of us, but I think we're also incredibly grateful to Mark McGowan. That comes out again and again. That sort of, he's a military person, top-down leadership. He might be the, the boy Bogan from Rockingham, which is sort of like, I guess, in for Sydney talk, a Westie boy. Um, but he's seen as the person and the leader of the government that has allowed Western Australia to stay healthy. Its economy is doing better than anywhere else in the, um, the whole of the country, and we're secure, and we're really become incredibly parochial. I'm seeing the um, waxit signs. You know, people are actually talking about having West Australia. So... Although COVID's far away from us, it touches us in the sense that we're really pleased that it's far, far away. And, and I think the overwhelming sentiment is from West Australians is that that's luck and the Labor government's handling of COVID. Just to one, one other thing too, Ben, is our isolation is huge and it's something that's always been there, but it's worked to our advantage when normally it's a disadvantage. And Mark McGill has probably played on that too and been able to use borders more easily than you could in New South Wales, for instance, or Victoria. Victoria. 
Well, all the all the other states to the east have populations that are kind of near the border, right? Like there are there are people on the New South Wales Queensland border, New South Wales Victorian border. WA has this big, you know, that there aren't a lot of people anywhere near the border, and so it it has been a lot easier. I mean, Western Australia probably has the most closed borders in the world right now, sort of, you know, North Korea or a few countries like that, you know, like very strict border closures, both internationally but also domestically. To the overwhelming satisfaction of the citizens of this state. It's very popular, very popular. So talking of popularity, we don't have a lot of polls. so we there's some evidence, but largely we're talking we're using other evidence about this popularity. Um, there was some polls in 2017, 2018 showing Labor kind of roughly holding the landslide lead for the 2017 election. We had a UCOMS poll the other day, uh, commissioned by the Conservation Council in WA, that had Labor on 61.39, which would be a 5.5% swing. And uh, we've also seen some marginal seat polling that's had the Liberals in danger of losing more of the, the handful of seats they currently hold. And unsurprisingly, the popularity ratings for McGowan are, are very high. Yeah, we don't have nearly as much polling as we had last time in 2017. There's a lot of polling then. Maybe some of the pollsters haven't bothered because I just think it's so one-sided. That figure of 61.39 sounds about right. Whether that's actually the eventual figure is another thing. We've still got time in the campaign for the Liberals to turn that around a little. But 61.39 would be a massive shellacking. And if it was a uniform swing, it would be devastating for the Liberals because they'd lose uh, Kirkup's own seat of Dawesville, but they'd also lose a heap of really lucrative seats that they would never normally lose, like Hillary's and Scarborough. So um, it would be a very shocking result. I don't know if it's going to be a shocking result. I think that's um, what Martin's painted is is highly likely. Um, when I was the Deputy Mayor of the City of Canning, we have a that area is both Labor and Liberal. Um, the state seat of Riverton, which was um, the leader of the, op- the the old leader of the opposition, Mike Nahan's seat, um, that might transfer over a 4.2% swing to Dr. Jags, um, who's an Indian gentleman, very rich doctor uh, for the Labor Party. Um, Riverton's been oh Liberal safe seat for a long, long time. It's it's where Ben Morton's base is. Um, we haven't heard anything from Ben Morton this time round. He's Scott Morrison's fixer. A huge um, presence in the row eight, nine um, issues and, and everything's just been really, really quiet in the Liberal side. So both the polling and the opposition are, are, just aren't making any cut through. The interesting thing about uh, the polling is that the Liberals um, they did quite a bit of polling on their own side late last year, it seems. There was this drooped out in some of the papers, etc. And that was said to be the catalyst for Lisa Harvey losing her job. So they were really worried that a lot of safe seats and Riverton seat that Christine mentioned was one of them. Like I said, Hillary's and Scarborough, but Darling Range was another one. Um, and even some of the regional seats that they hold. So that was the catalyst for changing. Um, but it doesn't seem to have made much difference. Darling Range is worth mentioning. That's the one uh, in the very early days of this podcast, there was a by-election there where the sitting Labor MP had been forced to resign. Very bizarre circumstances, and the seat went back to the Liberals, but we're now talking about what had always been seen as a safe Liberal seat going back to Labor again. So, um, yeah, it's it's looking like certainly there's, there's really no one talking about the prospect of the Liberals winning power, um, and... They, they may well find themselves with 
in single digits in terms of seats. I think at the moment they have about 13. They could be knocked down even further. So we've heard a few times mention of uh, Lisa Harvey and Zach Kirkup, who uh, replaced Harvey as Liberal leader in November last year. Tell us a little bit more about that story, about where, uh, where he came from. So Zach's the youngest member of the um, parliament, I believe. He's born in 1987. I was having a little look. I actually think I might have been teaching at the same school that he went to high school with, which is Govo, Governor Sterling Senior High School. Um, you know, he's he's really young, quite inexperienced, background of a staffer. Um, he's, he's grown a beard to make himself look a little bit older, I guess. Uh, but quick straw poll at work, and, and I've asked people who are pretty clever at university, you know, who's the leader of the opposition, and he's doesn't even have name recognition. Lisa Harvey, she was the leader who advocated bringing down the borders at the, about a week or two before the Victorian outbreak happened, and you can imagine how well that went down. It was just really poor timing, and I think that was the crash in the Liberal support. So, And they found it very difficult to pull back since that time. So Lisa Harvey got blamed for what was a really poor call uh, in the eyes of her own colleagues, I think. The aim in moving to Zach was actually to draw a line under that. And since that time, Zach said, I'm going to follow the medical advice all the way to try and neutralise that issue, COVID. But it's still, I think it's still difficult. And even in the most recent lockdown, our little five-dayer, uh, you know, Kirkup was right in agreement with McGowan. They were, they were in lockstep. There was no controversy about the idea of closing down the state for five days. One of the interesting stories in the last couple of days was that Kirkup's page was taken down by Facebook. I don't know if it's back now when Facebook purged all the news yesterday, but McGowan's page was left alone and McGowan came out and compared Zuckerberg to uh, a North Korean regime, some things like that. But uh, yeah, Zach Kirkup's page is back up now, but... Um, that was an interesting uh, development a couple of weeks out from the election. I think it also says a bit about how um, all of the news is dominated by um, federal issues at the moment and perhaps um, international. So we're a lot more focused on the um, rape crisis in federal parliament and uh, Texans being under snow than, than anything that's going on in Western Australia. So Facebook, which is really a national issue, is, you know, is, is more interesting at the moment. Uh, so you mentioned the climate policy. Uh, that has been interesting that the Liberal Party has kind of tried to outflank Labor with a more ambitious climate policy. That normally would have generated quite a bit of headlines, but just because of everything Christine was saying, yeah, the Liberals can't get any traction on it. In fact, Kirkup sounds more like a green leader than a liberal leader. Uh, you know, you're talking about preferences. It's things like, please don't don't make Labor uh, dominate the entire country. Um, don't put us last. Um, all these sort of, please, please consider us, which is usually coming from minor parties, and we're hearing that from the um, leader of the, the major opposition party. It's quite weird. Do we think that partly reflects that some of these seats, I'm, I'm kind of talk, thinking here about the stereotypical safe, liberal, wealthy, educated electorates in other states certainly that I'm aware of where a more progressive climate policy probably would go down better. Is this is this an attempt by the Liberals that they don't, they don't really have any prospects in these outer out suburban marginals where maybe... Um, a more ambitious climate policy wouldn't do them as well. But they're in so much trouble in the Western Australian equivalents of the North Shore of Sydney or whatever, where there's a lot of what once upon a time would be called doctors' wives, voters, you know, liberal voters who are concerned about climate change, the kinds of people who 
won the Wentworth by-election for Karen Phelps, that those people might be lost and, you know, that might be the difference between them holding eight seats and 13. Do we think that might be motivation? Over here, we call them the libs for forests. Oh, yeah. Um, so certainly it might be trying to capture that. I mean, it was a greenwash, though. Kirkup saying that he wants to have um, a lower carbon emissions in state-run enterprises, not private-run, and most of our stuff's run by Fortescue, you know, so it's a greenwash for a start. I think the climate policy is a policy for 2025. So Mark McGowan in 2013 released his Metronet policy, a very ambitious public transport policy, and he was never going to win in 2013, but it set him up well for 2017 and it gave him four years to sell it and as a point of difference to what the then government was doing. And I think this policy is set, trying to set up, particularly Zach, if he's still the leader, for 2025. It just gives him four years of talking about inaction on energy, which has been a bit of a problem. Energy policy here has been sort of stuck for a long time now uh, in the same zone, both under Liberal and Labor governments. And I think, it, yeah, he's looking ahead because he's not going to get much traction on it this time around. It's an interesting theory, Martin, because also, you know, uh, for a, for the non-West Australian listeners, um, you know, people might consider the Labor Party quite progressive, but really the ALP here is at best a centre-right party. And, you know, the, the way that we've handled China and iron ore we're very focused. We're a we're a mineral based economy. Um, a lot of the philosophy and and economic focus that the Labor Party here is is successfully pushing is is what might be considered more liberal based policy in other states. And so, the Liberal Party is trying everything to differentiate, but I, I, they're just not. It's just not working. As a strategy for this time round, I think it's really poor because. What, you, what Zach Kirkup needs to do is just hang on for the moment to hardcore Liberal voters, to his base. And the problem with this policy, it doesn't do anything for that. So he needed to run a really pro-business, pro-jobs, maybe law and order style campaign just to shore up his base because he just needs to hang on to as many of his own seats as possible. I wonder what the expectations are for him because he's clearly come into a sinking ship. And it looks like the ship is going to sink, as everyone expected it to. It may just be that they're like, thanks for thanks for taking the fall, and in four years' time we'll have something, someone else. But equally, I, I'm not hearing anything that Zach Kirkup, if anything, is a, is a symptom, not a cause of the Liberal Party's problems. And the Liberal Party is not unified, not unified under Kirkup and certainly not in the past. Um, during my time in um, local government council, I saw because it was a heavily dominated Liberal area, I would suggest that the Liberals are divided into at least three dominant factions and they hate each other probably even more than they hate the Labor Party. I thought I might jump into the upper house. So, uh, Martin, you mentioned the Labor not gaining control of the Legislative Council in 2017. Um, And uh, so I might give a bit of background about the upper house. The Upper House consists of six regions. Each region elects six people to the um, to the Legislative Council, uh, but those regions do not represent equal numbers of voters. The, there are three regions uh, outside of metropolitan Perth, and they represent about a quarter of the state, and they make up half of the Upper House, while the other three quarters of voters in Perth only make up the other half of the Upper House. So that creates quite a strong 
um, malapportionment like we do see in the Senate, but unlike in the Senate where the smaller states tend to be relatively even similar to the bigger states, that's not true at all in WA. The, the, the rural regions are very dominated by the right and that has allowed the right-wing parties, the nationals, the shooters to have a lot of influence. But the thing I want to talk about here is the group voting tickets. So for preferences in the upper house, they still use the system that was last used in the Senate in 2013, where parties lodge a preference ticket order, and then any voters who vote for that party above the line, their vote will follow that preference order. And it's the kind of system that allows really small parties to get elected off tiny votes with big blocks of votes being transferred in one big movement. Um, so, uh, I mean, Christine, I'll go, I'll go to you. Like, what of the preference decisions jumped out at you as being the most interesting? I think one of the things that was interesting to me is how little preference deals are going to matter possibly in this um, election cycle because of the landslide that is um, likely to occur. Um, there is a possibility that the Labor Party will um, also win a lot more seats in the upper house and there is a possibility that um, that will be with the Greens holding the balance of power. Labor's done some deals with Shooter and Fishers, which has caused some controversy, but I, I really think it's a conversation for those who are really interested and informed in politics. Um, again, because of the dominance of the news cycle and um, Mark McGowan, um, I just can't, from what I can see, the right-wing parties, your, your One Nations particularly, um, and Clive Palmer's parties, whatever he's going to call himself this time around, he's, he's not in it but he's still advertising, they aren't cutting through as much as they had in the previous elections. Um, yeah, I, I think that it's a bit of a non-story. Yeah, no, I, I probably have a different view. Um, I think that Labor's preferencing of the shooters was a mistake. In, and that's in the mining and agricultural regions. And the reason is this, because the shooters are in direct um, competition with the Greens in both those electorates who get elected. And this gives the shooters the edge because everyone knows Labor will poll really well. But, but this means the remaining quota all goes directly to the shooters. And the shooters won't support nearly as much of the Labor government's agenda as the Greens will. Now, the, apparently, we don't know for sure, but apparently the, the flip side is that the shooters preference uh, the Labor Party in Kalgoorlie and Geraldton, two regional seats. But they got less than 4% of those two, in those two regional seats last time. The preferences in the lower house aren't the same as preferences in the upper house. And there's no guarantee that shooters voters will preference Labor, even if they held a vote that says, says that. Whereas in the upper house, absolutely all those labor votes will go straight to the shooters. So I think that it helps the shooters a lot and it doesn't help, the, it certainly doesn't help the Greens, but it's only it doesn't really help Labor that much either. I think they'll win both of those seats that are in contention without the shooters' preferences. See, if I was Labor, I it would be good, it would be nice to have the option of just passing legislation with the Greens and there would be times where that would be helpful. But I've seen, in, I haven't paid that much attention to the upper house in WA and I don't know if either of you have any knowledge about what the single shooters MLC has done in there, particularly over the last four years while Labor's been in power. But certainly in New South Wales, Labor had the option a bunch of times to just work with the Greens and would often choose instead to work with the shooters and the Christian Democrats, uh, partly because the Greens uh, wouldn't do deals on a single issue. You know, they would have a set of a, a, an agenda and they'd want to work on that agenda, whereas you could give something to the shooters or give something to Fred Nile 
and then they would go along with the rest of your agenda. And I do think it also, regardless of that point, it, just from a pure ideological perspective, having two different, one group to the left and one group to the right and being able to pick and choose which one you want to work with gives the government a lot more power and a lot more flexibility. And that's certainly, I mean, the Victorian Greens did very poorly in the last upper house election, partly because of this preference system. They Their vote was fine, but they didn't win many seats. But there's something like Labor in Victoria needs to pull together a bunch of different uh, MPs, but largely they all work mostly independently of each other, so they have a bunch of options. So if I was Labor there, I'd go, if we're going to fall two or three seats short, it'd be really nice to be able to do deals with just the Greens or just the Shooters and be able to choose, which then means neither of those two parties has that much power over you because you get to choose which one you want to work with on any given day. Um, the the other thing, yeah, sorry, any thoughts on that? I don't know if it's worked quite like that here. I don't think that the, whether it's the shooters, whether it's the national, one national, they haven't been very, there hasn't been much collaboration or, or working together with the government. And I don't know whether that's the MPs in the upper house and their ability to do deals, I'm not sure. But generally the Greens have supported a fair bit of their, fair bit of their agenda, but not so much the other parties. At the last election, Labor plus the Greens won half of the seats in the upper house. So a single extra vote would be enough to pass legislation if they have the Greens. So if, you know, it looks like the Greens will probably lose their seat in mining and pastoral region to the shooters, but if there can be a net increase of one for the Labor and the Greens, so lose that seat and gain two others, that does give them a majority. Do you think there's any prospect they will fix the malapportionment in the upper house? Because that was a thing with the last Labor government in the 2000s that they fixed the malapportionment in the lower house but were not able to, partly because of some disagreements within the Greens, uh, weren't able to get the votes. And that's what will be fascinating. If if the scenario does land that it's um, a balance of power between the Greens and the Labor, um, you know, Greens and Labor do not get on particularly well in this state um, and they all the Labor Party people I know continually blame the malapportionment on decisions run by the Greens and that they, they, they hold on to that continually. They're not going to let that go. They're still angry. So it'll be absolutely fascinating if a deal could be done to change that situation um, going forward. Electoral reform. It's something that I've been campaigning for quite a bit, I must say, because uh, I think it's just outrageous the way it's set up at the moment. But they need 20 MPs. The reason is that the president doesn't vote and they need an absolute majority on the floor of parliament to pass legislation relating to electoral reform. So it's a bit harder. Okay, so they need to gain two seats to, to have the votes for that. And, of course, there's there's the reform to the regions, but there is also the preference system as well, which, you know, uh, Labor has been much less enthusiastic about making reforms to that system than... Um, the Greens have, and uh, uh, who knows how it depends how it comes out for Labor, I guess. But you know, Victorian Labor hasn't moved on that issue at all, and uh, you know, Federal Labor was resistant to the reforms when the Turnbull government did them. So, who knows if they go through? But if I was the Greens in WA, I'd be very eager to see those reforms happen because um, that would the, the, the preferencing reforms as well as the malapportionment, the 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 equal electorate size reforms. Um, but that, that also could be, I could imagine all that getting caught up together. What a can of historical worms you open. Well, we're talking about that system that you talked about then. Uh, we don't even have savings provisions. This is a bit more for the politics nerds. 
but you can't make a single mistake when you're number, numbering your um, ballot sequentially below the line. So you, it's even harder to vote below the line in Western Australia than it used to be in the Senate. These regions, we're talking about about 50 candidates running, so you would need to number about 50 boxes. And I don't have the data in front of me for uh, the uh, LC in WA, but certainly in the old Senate system, which, as you said, was a little bit easier than the WA system, about a third of people who tried to vote below the line had their vote counted as informal because there were so many mistakes. And it's quite it's quite hard to correct when you're actually not just trying to number random boxes but trying to actually express a preference about who these people are. It's quite easy to make a mistake and then one mistake and you're done. And, uh, yeah, so it, it, people really, for most people, they, they get shepherded very neatly into these preferences, which I'm sure we're going to talk about again probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, it's a bit of a shock for those of us who were satisfied about getting this reform done in the Senate. Well, one of the things as well that I haven't mentioned is that um, WA and Victoria have both had this system for a long time, but it wasn't until the reforms happened in the Senate that abolished group voting tickets in the Senate all of a sudden, the number of candidates running in WA and Victorian elections shot up. Like the the attention changed, the focus moved, parties that had focused on federal moved into the state level, the, the people who, I won't name him, but the, the guy that has done a lot of the preference deals between these small micro parties uh, has changed their focus to state politics. And you, if you're a WA voter, you'll notice that difference. It's not that much bigger than 2017, but that was a that was a very big ballot in 2017, and these ones are slightly bigger than that. So, um, people in WA are going to notice um, how much bigger their upper house ballot is, and it's sort of it's a it's a knock on effect of that system getting um, the 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 door being closed at a federal level for for those small parties. Yeah, that's very true, and uh, there's there's analysis that shows that some of those parties can get elected this time round, like Health Australia. Um, the, there's a one called Liberals for Climate, which you know appears to be a bit of a rip off of the Liberals' name. Uh, Liberal Democrats. Um, here's a little tidbit for you that you might not have seen. The Liberal Democrats MP got elected after being to the left of the Liberals on the ballot paper last time. Put out a press release saying, "I got elected accidentally because a lot of people confused me last time." Um, how about you do it deliberately this time? And that is a thing that the Liberal Democrats in particular, as and it gets worse as the ballots get bigger. You noticed, I, I definitely noticed this in the Victorian state election that um, you know, Victoria has eight regions in their upper house. Uh, I think this was the 2014 election. The four regions where the Liberals were to the right of the Liberal Democrats, the Liberal Democrats came up first on the ballot. The Liberal Democrat vote was much higher and it was much lower in the regions where they were to the right of the Liberals. So it does make a difference. The donkey vote can be valuable, but the donkey vote is very valuable if you have a confusing name like the Liberals. I mean, it basically is what got um, David Lionhelm elected to the Senate. Aaron Stonehouse, who's the one single Liberal Democrats MLC, sitting MLC, he's now to the right of the Liberals. So it's going to be a bit harder for him this time around. To be clear, we're talking physically on a ballot paper, not ideologically. That That's a... May also be true, but is a more complicated conversation. Just interesting that the only two things that seem to have been um, in the media at the moment is an attack from the left on homelessness and an attack from the right on the Crown. Um, and Mark McGowan again swatted them away quite well. We have a lot of issues of homelessness in Western Australia and um, during the months of um, 
well, during December, particularly around Christmas time, people have been trying to highlight these issues. They set up a, um, a tent city across the road from the um, Minister for Housing, um, Simone McGurk, in Fremantle. Then they agreed to um, house them in a hotel in Perth for a while, and, and some scandals have arisen from that. Um, but th that's been an attack from the Greens from the left, and I don't think that it's been particularly effective. Likewise, with the scandal going on about Sydney and Crown, um, Crown here in WA, uh, they've been looking at what's going on with the corruption um, here and all of the donations that have gone to the major parties from Crown, um, but there's now going to be a judicial inquiry. So I think, uh, again, that those are about the only two things that might have at the moment um, attacked labour and, and been problematic for them, but so far I think they're handling both of those issues quite well. The WA Electoral Commission has said that up to 70% of votes this election could be cast early, and that's in line with uh, the three COVID elections last year. So many votes will be cast early, and the candidates probably have to convince people a lot earlier than they usually do. Yeah, so I've actually got a blog post scheduled to go up on Monday about the day that early voting begins about this exact topic, that the um, WA, like every state, has been seeing the same gradual slow trend of pre-poll and postal voting going up, ordinary election day voting going down. Um, I kind of, I'm assuming because things have been so normal in WA that maybe the, the increase won't be quite so high as we've seen in 2020 on the east coast you know we've had we had a bunch of elections we had queensland and act and nt and a bunch of council elections as well a few by-elections um but yeah that one will be one to watch and i'm hoping that we'll be able to get the data to track the pre-poll rate as each day goes by cool um well i might wrap up there if if we're good to go and i will say thanks to each of you and give you a chance to answer um does anyone have anything to plug? Anything you're not doing anything with the election or any any writing or anything? Um, I can jump to that as well. No, cool. Um, so that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Christine and Martin, for joining me. You can find the Tally Room guide in full, published at www.tallyroom.com.au/wa2021. The guide features profiles of all 59 lower house electorates and the six upper house regions. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room. Uh, the script says, or like us on Facebook, but at the moment you can't access us on Facebook. Hopefully we'll be back soon. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.